3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, Malika. Good morning. It's another bright and early Thursday morning. Um, looking a little bit cloudy. Uh, I'm not sure if people have seen. We're going into another La Nina. Yeah, I know. But actually, the weather forecast for the rest of the week is good. So that's the kind of time frames I'm working with at the moment. I'm like, oh, the weekend's going to be sunny. I've been. I, oh, go ahead, Malika. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't trust the weather forecast anymore. <laughs> I feel like it says rainy and then I don't do my washing. And then I'm like, oh, missed out on another great washing day. Yeah, I'm that adult down. now. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I think um, I've now been lulled into a false sense of security, thinking that every time it says it's going to be heavy rain, it's going to be fine. And there's going to be a day where I make plans and then I'm absolutely drenched because I failed to predict that there would be rain because, you know, because I, I, I reverse psychology myself. Anyway, enough of that interesting stuff. Uh, let's jump into what we have on for today. Rosie, you want to take it away? Yeah, sure. So uh, yesterday I spoke with Mick Power, Logistics Coordinator at United Workers Union, um, and we spoke about the country word Country Road Workers Strike Action and Win at the Truganina Warehouse, um, and the workers were fighting for union rights, fair pay, and better working conditions. We will then be speaking with Julia Cochran, the State Director of Coalition for the Protection of Greyhounds Victoria, and they join us to speak about concerns with the Melbourne Cup Greyhound racing season, which is now underway. Julia is also a lead volunteer for rescue group Gumtree Greys. And then we'll be speaking with Tish King, um, a proud Torres Strait Islander with strong connections to Masig and Badu Islands and the campaign director at SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network. And then also joining us in that conversation will be Jacinta Fa'amau, a member of the Pacific Climate Warriors and a regional and the regional Pacific Campaign Specialist at 350. Um, so this is a follow-up conversation in a way, after COP26, uh, following up from the conversation that we had with Pacific Climate Warrior Folole, um, and we'll be speaking with Tish and Jacinta about COP26, about First Nations Pacific leadership and solidarity in the fight for climate justice. Yeah, it's really awesome to be able to have this, this debrief after COP26, because I know a lot of people were very disappointed with uh, with the outcomes, but it's really important to be talking to First Nations um, activists who are working on the front lines of um, fighting climate change. So I'm really keen to hear how that goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to hear from them both too. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2021. 
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And it is just past 7.04 in the morning. And here's the news headlines. So um, in headlines this week, activists are protesting the federal government's religious discrimination bill after the third revision was released to Parliament this week. The bill will give the right of religious schools hospitals, charities, aged care facilities, and accommodation providers to fire LGBTIQ plus workers, overriding soon-to-be-passed anti-discrimination protections in Victoria. The federal labor opposition has so far avoided adopting a stance on the legislation. In Victoria, a state MP has said that if the bill becomes law, it should be challenged by the state government in a high court challenge. Major sexual consent reforms have passed through the New South Wales Parliament this week, with similar reforms being proposed in Victoria. The affirmative consent laws will mean a person must take active steps to confirm that they have received consent for sexual activity or risk committing a crime. The law will provide better justice for victims and survivors of sexual assault and flip the system which previously placed too much focus on the behaviour of victims. The proposed reforms are part of a 10-year strategy from the government following an examination into sexual violence that found cases were widespread and underreported. In other news, the Victorian Supreme Court yesterday ordered that state logging agency Vic Forests halt logging in 27 areas of forest across East Gippsland and the Central Highlands. Local community environmental groups have vowed to to continue to launch court court actions against Vic Forests, saying that the government-owned logging agency is failing to adequately survey for threatened animals prior to logging, which is having a deadly toll on these species. And finally, activists are calling for people to join a vigil next week to remember the millions who have lost their lives because of wealthy government inaction on COVID vaccine equity. The European Union and the UK continue to block a life-saving proposal from the World Trade Organization to lift intellectual property monopolies on COVID vaccines, which would enable more vaccines to be produced in developing countries. Free the Vaccine vigils will coincide with the World Trade Organization meetings next week, with people gathering at the German consulate on Tuesday the 30th of November at midday. And that's all we've got for the headlines, but I just wanted to chime in with some of what's being covered um, first, uh, first of all, the last thing um, with the vigil and those conversations around vaccine apartheid, we've had a couple of conversations on Thursday breakfast about this. And I remember speaking with Julia Dem, um, I think, was that this year or last year? That was this year, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, about yeah about the ways that, like, she was working, yeah, to kind of get that as well over past, because Australia also doesn't support that um, lifting of the intellectual property rights for the vaccines. I mean, makes sense, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's just so shameful that this vaccine, like global vaccine apartheid, is going uh, is continuing. Where you know people like Rosie and I have had both of our shots, and we're waiting for boosters. Whereas there are people in so many countries in the quote unquote global south who haven't even had their first vaccine. Yeah, it's it's absolutely shameful, and uh, I know I feel like we talked so much about you know our slow vaccine rollout and all these things, and then how bigger you know, how big an important step that even felt on a, on a social and personal level to have that vaccine and just how many people in the world are blocked from that because of these, um, yeah, property laws, basically. Yeah, it is, you know, it's just an absolute shame and encourage people to keep an eye on that and, you know, get informed about um, the expense uh, to others at which we are, you know, accessing these life-saving vaccines. Um, I also wanted to note that 
There is a Melbourne protest for Sudan um, on Saturday, November 27th from 3 to 5 p.m. at the State Library of Victoria. And if you've been tuned in all this week, you might know that Tuesday Breakfast interviewed uh, someone who's involved with that. Um, And this is to do with the fact that... um, People in Sudan um, from early Monday, October 25th, have been under yeah a, a, a media and internet blackout uh, when the country has uh, was I guess um, quoting uh, an activist that organized the protest hijacked by the military led by General Abdel Fattah Al Burhan, and so people have been protesting, expressing rejection for the military takeover, and have been met with a lot of brutality that's not receiving much coverage. So again, Melbourne Protest for Sudan is on Saturday, the 27th of November, from 3 to 5 p.m. at the State Library of Victoria. And yeah, that's all we've got for covering the headlines. But again, you know, if you've got any events, anything important that's coming up in the community, you can always get in touch with us at, at 3CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram. Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And just before we jump into our first um, interview for today, I thought we'd play a new track. So this is Weakness by Alice Ivy and Psycho.
you're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CRA 55 AM. And that was Weakness by Alice Ivy and Sicko. And Rosie really drilled me in saying Sicko, not Psycho. And instead, I said Psycho uh, in the front announce. So sorry about that, Sicko. Yeah, but that's okay. We all we all make mistakes. So this is um, just coming up now. We're going to listen to an interview that I did yesterday with Mick Power, who's the logistics coordinator at the United Workers Union, and we spoke about the country worker country road workers strike action um, and their win, which was really awesome to see. Um, and the workers were fighting for union rights, for fair pay, and for better conditions. So uh, I just wanted to begin, Mick, with workers from country road groups. Truganina Warehouse went on strike for two weeks and that began on November 11th. Could you tell us about the action and why the strike was called in the first place? Yeah, sure thing. So um, the workers at the Country Road Warehouse, this is their national DC. So all of the David Jones Country Road politics, witchery, Mimco, Trenary, if you bought any of that from a shop or online, these are the workers who picked it and packed it and got it to your door during the, the lockdowns. And they were working really, really hard when a lot of people were at home. And it was quite a dangerous environment. A lot of, a lot of warehouse workers got COVID at work. And yet their wages were nowhere near what other warehouse workers make, which is important because most warehouse workers in Melbourne's West are making north of $30 an hour and they happen to be mostly men. And the workers at this warehouse were making a dollar above minimum wage, give or take, and they happen to be mostly women and a lot of migrant women. Mm. So they joined our union. They started to negotiate for a living wage and for union recognition and justice. And unfortunately, they didn't get any of that until they went on strike for it. So they went on strike for it. Yeah, well, that's important to note, isn't it, as well, that these were demands that these workers were probably making for a long time before they did call a strike. Um, could you t- tell us a bit about what that action looked like? So they were on strike for two weeks, but I believe there are also actions at Melbourne Fashion Week um, and outside some of the country road stores as well. Yeah, that's right. So um, the workers at the warehouse, you know, took indefinite strike action and stopped working. Um, and, you know, had a strike protest all around the site, as they normally do. But um, last week was Fashion Week, and that was the most important week of the strike. And uh, so the workers were also going to great lengths to make sure that customers and the public knew what their fight was about and supported them in it. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, um, I also just wanted to pick up on that point as well that you made earlier about uh, workers being uh, exposed to COVID and taking quite a lot of risks during the pandemic as well. That, that's really important. And it was great to hear that the campaign um, was successful in terms of securing a new agreement for this group of workers. So could you tell us about um, the win and what was secured in the new agreement? Yeah, so um, the members voted to accept an in-principle agreement. We're still hammering out the details, but it has a total of 13.3% wage increases over three and a half years. It has 20 new permanent jobs um, and union members are entitled to submit a list of long-term casuals to be considered for those jobs. 
Um, a really big one was site rates. So whether they're whether the workers are directly employed by Country Road or whether they're labour hire, same site, same rights under mm. this agreement. Um, and then so the workers beat Anthony Albanese to his announcement by a couple of days, which is nice. <laughs> Um, and then the most, a really important one was union rights. So for a long time, the company had been willing to recognize the United Workers Union delegates, but all of the union rights that they had previously enjoyed, like paid time meetings, delegate training, notice boards, inductions, all of those had disappeared as soon as they chose our union. And so what the workers got is, uh, paid delegate training, um, a union notice board finally, and, um, the right to be introduced to new workers and, and say, I'm a union delegate, this is a union site. That's that's really great. Um yeah, so many important so many important wins within that um in principle agreement. It'll be yeah, really great to see that implemented at the site. I did want to touch a bit more on the gender um question and dimension of this action because you did mention that the striking workers were predominantly women um and they were fighting in part for this kind of, you know, closing this pay gap um, with men working equivalent warehouse jobs. Uh, and I was also reading that there were reports that some of the workers were threatened with dismissal um, for calling out something like this pay gap. So could you just talk a bit about that gendered nature of the dispute? Yeah, so generally speaking, warehousing is roughly 70, 30 blokes, right, doing the work. And... Um, Retail warehousing in general, and this warehouse specifically, had an unusually high number of women. So at Country Road, it's probably 80, 20 women, men, women to men. That's not the case for the management team. So the site management team in particular and the warehousing management team further up the chain was almost all men. And so what you had is, you know, a group of women who were trying to get their wages up to the rest of the industry, which is mostly men, and close the gender pay gap. And you had a management team that was mostly men um, fighting quite hard to try and prevent that from happening. Um, There was a lot of really problematic conduct, a lot of intimidation, a lot of bullying. I'm not going to go into it now that the strike is done, the agreement is reached. Um, We're not here to disparage the company now that we've reached an understanding. Um, but yes, that was very much real and, and, and fairly widespread. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not to disparage the company necessarily once you've agreed the agreement, but just to note that that is something that does happen whether here or at other companies that, um, not only are women sometimes subject to these, uh, poorer conditions, but yeah, that they I mean, all workers, when they call things out, that can be a really, um, dangerous, uh, step to take um and so that's what obviously why unions are so important yeah and like look the truth is most most strikes never get to the strike part right Mm. because right before the workers go on strike everyone realizes that this is going to happen and it's actually kind of crazy to force workers to do this and let's be adults i think part of the reason this one went all the way is because most of the workforce are women most of them were probably older women a lot of them, I mean, a lot of them were migrant women, like Filipina, Timorese, Chinese, South Asian. And I think there had been a culture at that website for a very long time where what the boss said goes and, 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 you know, they had a good relationship with the workers as long as you kept your mouth shut and did what you were told. 
And so I think part of the reason this one came to it all the way to a strike is because I don't reckon they thought these workers had it in them. Like, everybody underestimated these workers again and and again and again, you know, because they're not mouthy warehouse blokes, do you know what I mean? But Mm. that doesn't mean that they're not strong. It doesn't mean that they're weak. It doesn't mean they're not going to stand up for each other. And, you know, they they basically proved everybody wrong by going on strike for 12 days and winning. It's just great to hear, um, yeah, these kind of success successes and wins. Um, and, yeah, really important to note that kind of racialized dimension as well, that it's not just a gendered issue, but it can also be a racialized issue in this in these contexts. Um, and that kind of touches on, I was going to ask next about, Broadly, the campaign that they were running also pointed out, you know, some of the hypocrisy around um, country road groups claims to ethical practices. And that was all part of Melbourne Fashion Week, Week, which had a focus on ethical and sustainable uh, fashion and companies. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about why it is that workers' rights, um, pay and conditions are so often overlooked when we're thinking about kind of this idea of ethical branding or sustainable branding? And why is it so crucial to hold companies to account on this front? Yeah, well, the short answer is I don't know why it's such a big problem, but it is a really big problem. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of companies out there, especially retail companies who are geared towards a middle class, you know, maybe wealthier suburb market. And these companies are desperate to show that they are so green like specifically green and sustainable and, mm. you know, they, they want to, I mean, L'Oreal during Fashion Week, while they had workers on strike, had an executive speaking on a panel about how to fix greenwashing. And, you know, they're doing, they're doing that while their workers are on strike talking up green credentials. I used to work in the environment movement. Um, I, I, you know, environmental justice and climate justice is very close to my heart. I don't understand how a company can say we want to save the planet, but we're willing to screw workers on the way. But what I'll say is that a lot of, a lot of companies are trying that on. And, you know, I want to, I want to give a shout out. A lot of people in the environment movement were not having any of it during this. So Environment Victoria and Friends of the Earth in particular made some pretty quick and pretty clear public statements that the environment movement is not about mistreating workers or forcing your workers out on strike. And, um, yeah, kudos to them. We need more of that. Totally, yeah. Need that solidarity. Also, I was just thinking then about the way that you were talking about it is so much about branding and framing and the the audience or the uh, market that the companies think that they're kind of targeting towards while, um, yeah, paying their workers, uh, you know, wages where they wouldn't even be able to afford to buy the products that they're kind of working and warehousing and um, picking and packing. So it's, it's pretty, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it, it's just, it, it's hard to understand what it's actually like, but you know, if you work in a country raid road, chances are you're pulling in $900 a week before tax. Now, if you're one of several wage earners in a household or if you've got money or, or, or wealth tucked away, that's okay. But you know, a lot of the people working in this warehouse are parents. A lot of them, are single mothers. A lot of them are the only source of income in the family. And when you take 900 bucks, knock off the tax, and then spread it across all of your dependents, like, there are some people who go on strike because they want better wages, and there are some people who go on strike because they need better wages. And country road workers need better wages. Mm. So I'm very proud. This year, like, the reality of this year of the pandemic is that 
most blue-collar workers have been working twice as hard in much riskier situations. And most of these companies, especially big retail companies, they closed the shops, they didn't pay the retail workers, in some cases they didn't pay their rent. They've made a killing out of the pandemic, but a lot of the workers who actually are, you know, essential workers have been busting their ass and just really struggling to make ends meet. So I'm very proud that there's been a lot of workers going on strike this year and there's going to be more. I think people need to understand why. Like workers are, workers are at breaking point in a lot of cases. And unfortunately, Australia took a pay cut this year. So the average wages of Australian workers was below inflation, which in a year like this is completely fucking ridiculous, to be honest. I'm very proud that inflation's at 3%. The country road workers are some of the only workers in Australia who broke through that 3% wage barrier. Um, and they wouldn't have done that without going on strike. Yeah, that's so true. I know it's, it is, I feel like it's been a running theme when we've spoken, um, about different work disputes, but just like the recognition of how hard people have been working, essential workers have been working, especially, yeah, blue collar workers. And while that recognition has been given to, you know, health workers and that, that sort of thing, teachers, um, yeah, people working really dangerous jobs because of COVID and working extra hard and then kind of having to deal with the same difficult situation that we've all been dealing with in terms of lockdown. So, yeah, definitely shout out to those workers. Um, now that you have secured that win, I was just wanting to turn to other campaigns. You mentioned there that <laughs> strikes are probably going to be forthcoming. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about other campaigns that you're working on for listeners to follow um, and also listeners uh, who want to find out more about United Workers Union and perhaps join the union if that is that relevant for them? Yes. Well, I can't speak about the other campaigns only because I don't know about them and I'd get it wrong. But we're the union for a lot of industries. We're the largest blue-collar union in the country. In the warehousing team, we've just had eight, eight warehouses in three states go on strike and wrap them up and win in two weeks. I'm, I believe there are other workers in our union who are waiting to go on strike before the end of the year, but I'll, I'll need to let those organisers talk about them because I don't know what's up. And then as to the United Workers Union, so we're the, we're the largest blue-collar union in Australia. We represent warehouse workers, farm workers, food workers, manufacturing workers, early childhood educators, ambulance drivers, aged care workers, public sector workers, zookeepers, cleaners, security guards. We're the union for a lot of workers in this country. Um, and we make no apologies about being a fighting union. Like, we go on strike. We do that. We we don't back down because it's the smart move. We do what is the just move. And so if you're if you're working in one of our industries, join the United Workers Union online. Um, just Google United Workers Union and you'll find it. Um, and if you're not working in one of our industries, and, and keep in mind that 20% of Australians are working in one of our industries, if you're not, you can join as a community supporter um, or as a retired member if you're retired. Great. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Mick. And, yeah, um, congratulations to the Country Road Group uh, Warehouse Workers on that win. Thanks very much, mate. Appreciate it. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and that was an interview that I did with Mick Power who's the logistics coordinator at the United Workers Union and we were speaking there about country road workers strike action and win at the Truganina warehouse and the workers there were fighting for union rights, fair pay and better working conditions. And now Malika, your interview with Julia Cochram. 
Yes, <laughs> thanks for that little segue, Rosie. Um, we will be speaking with Julia Cochran, the State Director of Coalition for the Protection of Greyhounds Victoria, and they join us to speak about concerns with the Melbourne Cup Greyhound racing season, which is now underway. Julia is also a lead volunteer to rescue group Gumtree Greys. Good morning, Julia. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No, really excited to have you join us this morning. Um, for most listeners, um, they're probably aware of Cup Day for horse racing, but could you tell us a bit more about Greyhound Racing and the upcoming race day? Uh, so the Melbourne Cup will be run next Friday or tomorrow <laughs> and uh, is a series of heats over six days that culminates in the Melbourne Cup final. So um, these are eight dog races uh, and... Sadly, we've already had our first fatality in a dog called Rebellious, a two-year-old greyhound who has fractured his uh, hock and um, been euthanised. That's absolutely devastating mm. to hear that it's not even the official start date and there's already one greyhound down. Yes, unfortunately, um, greyhound racing is extremely dangerous uh, for greyhounds and um they run at 60 kilometres an hour and bunch up on curves and unfortunately they are injured and killed. We we don't think that's entertainment. No, um, so no, we no. advocate for greyhounds and say it's not it's not good enough that even one dog dies, mm. um, let alone there's 220 stand-down days. A stand-down day is when a dog is injured and a vet says that dog must stand down from racing um, and not because uh, to be able to recover from its injuries. So from the, all the dogs that have raced so far in the lead-up to this cup, there's yet a, a total of 220 stand-down days. And when a dog is is met, is like requested to stand-down, what usually happens to those dogs? Do they usually, um, like, are they usually just resting and recuperating or are they euthanised? What tends to happen to those dogs? So in the case of Rebellious, he was given a 90-day stand-down because they must have given him an x-ray at the track and discovered he had a fractured hock. Yeah. Uh, he went home um, with the trainer and then the next day they would take it to another vet, their local vet, uh, and then they got another scan, saw that the dog would need to have it pinned um, and have screws put in, and they chose not to do that. We would do that for our pet dogs, but they don't do that for racing dogs because this dog will not be able to race again. So they just euthanized it. They could have rehomed the dog. They could have operated on the dog um, and fixed that leg, but it would cost you know, around about $4,000. And poor Rebellious, even though he made uh, his connections over $50,000 in prize money, uh, he didn't get to have a uh, happy ever after. Yeah. And so it sounds like a lot of the times it can end in euthanasia for these dogs that might have to be stood down or maybe get injured or have to retire from racing. What are some of the alternatives that your organisation is advocating for other than euthanasia? Well, there's a few things um, that we advocate for. One is government funding of the independent rescues. So in Victoria currently, the greyhound industry has a program called the Greyhound Adoption Program, and they rehome every year about 1,000 dogs. But in Victoria, we breed for 4,500 dogs. So that's a lot of dogs that aren't being rehomed by the racing industry. So there are these uh, independent rescues, like the one that I volunteer with, Gumtree Grays, that... uh, 
have no funding from anyone. Um, we all fundraise and we take the dogs from the track and rehome them. So we think those groups should be funded. And we think they should be funded by the Victorian government. Um, and to, you know, to, to help rehome more dogs. If the dogs can't be rehomed, and for behaviour reasons, some dogs can't. They are um, sight hounds that like to chase things. Um, we think that they should be uh, put into sanctuaries. In New South Wales, they have bought a property to have a sanctuary, and there is a horse sanctuary from the horse racing industry in Victoria at the moment. Um, we think sanctuaries could create thousands of jobs, put the dogs in there, you have people looking after them. You wouldn't need to have uh, greyhound racing. We could phase out greyhound racing and um, create more jobs through having sanctuaries for these dogs. Mm. And mm. how much is, like, kind of leading on from that, you're saying that there's not a lot of investment in the rehoming of the dogs, but how much is being invested in these races every year? It's hard to tell. <laughs> the government's not very uh, clear on that. Uh, they'll, they'll give out press releases. For example, the um, state government uh, put, has put $25,000 towards the Melbourne Cup final. So that, that's their um, gift to racing uh, for the um, to pop up the prize money. Um, they do have a fund um, that called the VRIF, which takes unclaimed betting money and some betting taxes and pops it into this fund away from general revenue and then uh, basically says it's the greyhound industry's money and pays it back. This fund was established about 10 years ago and prior to that, all the money that would come in like any other um, sector where there's unclaimed monies or tax revenue, it would just go to general revenue and be taxes that would then get doled out. Um, they funnel a large amount of money away um, to do this, uh, you know, we, we know that they've paid $5 million for a new track at Taralgon, um, which will be opening this year. Um, and, you know, we also, they also received a $4 million COVID bailout. Um, and, you know, this is an industry that makes made $155 million in revenue that's still being propped up by the Victorian government. It's absolutely heartbreaking to just think about rebellious who just needed $4,000 for surgery to mm. fix their injury, but there is millions and millions of dollars being pumped into this industry and coming out of the industry at the same time just for pure entertainment. Absolutely. And if these trainers with these dogs with a fractured leg, if they had a run the rescues and said, we can't afford it, can you take this dog that needs to get a fracture pin? We would be fundraising. We would take that dog. We would fix its leg and we would rehome it. Um, we take dogs that are injured all the time, but they don't even make the phone call. It sounds like there's there's a gap between what's going on at the races and this incredible community outside who are more than happy to rehome, train, um, and support with any of the associated expenses. Yes, we... Uh, we often hear trainers say we love our dogs, but trainers don't love their dogs. If you love your dog, you take it to the vet when it's injured, <laughs> like we do with our pet dogs. We we, you know, we cry, we're devastated when they're injured. We'll do anything to help them get better. Mm. And we see this all across social media when people's dogs get sick. You know, we, we really love our dogs. We wouldn't say that dog can't race again, therefore we'll put it down, Yeah, which is 
which is what happens. Um, if they're injured, they are allowed to put them down. If they're not injured, they have to try to rehome them for a few avenues, um, but it's pretty easy for a trainer to get a dog euthanised. Um, all you have to do is email a, um, a rescue and the rescue says, we're full at the moment, you'll have to try somewhere else, and that's a tick. They're allowed to euthanise then. Mm. Devastating. And for people um, listening today that would like to follow along and support the work you're doing, where can they kind of keep track of um, the different advocacy work and even fundraising work that's going on? Well, the uh, Coalition for Protection of Greyhounds has got a fantastic website called the greyhoundcoalition.com. And if you want to learn all about racing in Australia and uh, can jump on there. It's, um, it gives you lots of different white papers about rehoming and track safety and talks about our five-point plan, which um, includes safer tracks, whole-of-life tracking for every dog, so we know exactly what happens to dogs, um, reduced breeding sanctuaries and increased penalties for mistreatment. So they're the five things that we think are achievable if we just really push our politicians to enact it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, um, Julia. And, yeah, for listeners that are interested, definitely check out the website and have a look at that policy paper. But um, thank you once again for joining us this morning, Julia. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and uh, letting the public know a bit more about the reality of greyhound racing. 100%. Thanks again, Julia. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast and we just heard from Julia Cockrum, State Director of Coalition for the Protection of Greyhounds Victoria and they joined us this morning to speak about concerns with the Melbourne Cup Greyhound Racing season which is now underway and Julia is also a lead volunteer with the rescue group Gumtree Greys. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just past 7.40 in the morning. And we are going to go to another track. This is a new one from Spinifex Gum and Marley Acquire, No Longer There.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Get your Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And woof, what a, what a incredible choral arrangement. We just heard No Longer There by Spinifex Gum and Marlia Choir. I don't think we've played any choral music on Thursday Brekkie before. Yeah. Um, so, uh, listeners, next up, we've got a really great interview. We're having a little bit of trouble getting on to Jay, but we're going to speak with, um, Tish King, who's a proud Torres Strait Islander with strong connections connections to Masig and Badu Islands and is the campaign director at Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. And Tish believes in working towards sustainable futures for First Nations communities. As a Torres Strait Islander, Tish understands the intrinsic value of country and the spiritual connections to the islands. 
Tish, uh, are you there? Good morning. Thank you so much um, for joining us this morning. I was just wondering if you could begin by uh, yeah, in- introducing yourself. Absolutely. Uh, so happy to be here, folks out there tuning in. Uh, my name is Tish Peking. Everyone calls me Tish. And uh, like you just said, Rosie, I- I'm a proud Kokolog woman from Kokogol Nation from the islands of Mustang and connections to Baru Island in Zendikas. Uh, commonly known by the colonial name, uh, Torres Strait Islands. And I'm here on them and actually want to just, you know, um, acknowledge the traditional owners here, um, on them, on Warrandera country of the Kulin kinship and pay my respects to the elders past, present and those yet to come and shout out to any mob that are, yeah, tuning in today. Thank you so much. And Tish, you were, um, in Glasgow actually for COP26, which is pretty crazy. It seemed like it was a last minute, a last minute dash over there. But from over here, we did hear a number of reports that First Nations voices um, were unfortunately excluded at the summit and there was also some access issues with the venue. Could you just tell listeners a bit about um, why you went to the summit and your experience there? Yeah, absolutely. And wow, you're right. Like, that, the summit actually, it was such a whirlwind. It happened within, like, um, within five days. And it was, yeah, super incredible. And I, like, you know, couldn't have done it with the many people from Sea Team, our islands are home, and um, the Indigenous People Organization that really helped and endorsed, you know, a young person to go and be able to re- represent young First Nations voices. But, you know, know um all first nations people across the um across the country and so i kind of actually want um it was my first time going and i was super excited um i think because you know um passionate about protecting country culture and climate you know this was like this is kind of it right it's like the, the met gala of like climate chat you know all the people that um need to know are going to be there like who's who and so i was really excited to sort of you know learn um from what other First Nations peoples are doing, um, advocating for change, um, but making those connections because it's something that we say um, at Feed is, you know, there needs to be, with climate justice, you know, you need First Nations justice. And so, you know, I went in and I was just like, I felt like just a fresh, you know, greeny, like walking in and was so naive to, like, you know, what it could be. And think about walking into, you know, one of those sort of, like, um, show bag pavilions at the show, and there's just, like, flashing lights and lots of colours everywhere. And, you know, when you walk into, um, you know, the space, you start off with walking through the um, pavilion, which is where all the states are part of under the um, UNFCCC come together. And, you know, I guess the idea is to share, you know, their ambitious targets for reducing their emissions, how they're uh, shifting to renewable solutions and renewable projects. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of them were super transparent. Um, but it was actually really overwhelming to, you know, go up to, um, you know, to the Australian Pavilion and actually just see 
um, you know, there was no transparency with, you know, our targets and how we were going to reduce our emissions rapidly. And it was actually just really overwhelming with like, okay, this can't be setting the scene, right? And, you know, we're already quite cautious heading over there, being with COVID and, uh, you know, acknowledging the risk with, you know, the health and safety. But, uh, you know, I was put on an observer badge and usually we're able to go into the plenary to listen to these important conversations. But we didn't even have access to go into a 100-meter radius of the entrance Mm. where we were being turned around. And then, you know, going back to, you know, our pavilion, I just didn't feel like I was in a culturally safe space um, being there because it was stacked with fossil fuel executives yeah. and people that invest in uh, investing in fossil fuel expansion. And so it was it was just a really overwhelming feeling with um, with, you know, where can I go in that space? Um, where did I feel safe, culturally safe for that matter? And then, you know, it was then also a matter of getting in the room with, you know, our negotiators um, to have these important conversations, especially when we were uh, seeing these decisions being made with, you know, a lack of consultation processes. Yeah, thank you so much. There's so much in what you were saying just there because... Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. No, no, it's great. Like, it's a huge experience. I can't imagine how complex it would have been um, to kind of, yeah, navigate that space. And like you say, the Australian Pavilion having um, those fossil fuel companies there, like, yeah, kind of being a huge part of the Australian um, presence at the at the conference. And then... Sorry, we've just we've just lost Tish, but um, we'll just go to a CSA and get this sorted. One moment. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery, and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands with programming led by black and indigenous community members in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2021. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and I'm very pleased to report that we now have both Tish King and Jay Fa'amau on the line. And Jay, I just introduce you. Um, Jay is a member of the Pacific Climate Warriors and a regional Pacific campaign specialist at 350. And they're both joining us today. We just started our conversation about COP26 and First Nations and Pacific leadership and solidarity in the fight for climate justice. So, um, Tish was just speaking there about the experience of being at COP26 and the kind of really overwhelming um, experience and also the culturally unsafe experience of going to the Australian Pavilion and, you know, all of the fossil fuel uh, companies and execs represented there. So, Jay, I might just ask you now to introduce yourself if you'd like to for listeners. Um, morning, everyone. Sorry I am late. <laughs> it's so early for me. But, um, yeah, I... With the 
Climate Warriors, been with them since 2014. Um, I, my first COP was back in 2017, COP23 for Bonn, Germany. Um, Travelled this year, but it was so cool to see Tish go. And um, but I work with the it was three fifty Pacific part of the Global Network three fifty dot org, and I'm based in um, Melbourne on Wasserun Country. Thank you, Jay. Um, so Tish, we might just go back to you, and I, I wanted to ask, like you were talking about, you know, the experience of being at COP twenty six, and there are this there is this like really big um, focus on uh, these COP. Um, uh, summits and you know what they will do and all this stuff and it, it seems like um, it's pretty it's been a pretty disappointing uh, uh, conference this this year but I was wondering about kind of what messages or action came out of that for you and like where you're kind of focusing your energy um, as seed and yourself going forward from there. Yeah, look, thanks for that, um, Rosie. That was um, yeah, it, it you know it's it, it's actually been. Um, really incredible to sort of, you know, reflect deeply about this um, because it's, uh, you know, a, a, a lot came from this. And so, um, you know, historically, um, for those folks out there, COP actually came about um, back in 1992 after um, there was this incredible speech called the Kyoto speech came out um, that said at a world gathering in Rio de Janeiro that, you know, set, uh, when we talk about climate and the nature, we must talk about the people because we're so interconnected because Indigenous people across the globe have been looking after, you know, their land for time immemorial. And so when we talk about the safety of climate, we must also talk about the safety of people. And so this is where the rights of Indigenous people, you know, sort of really came out and how COP like, came about was that they, you know, wanted to make sure front and centre that the rights of Indigenous people were there. Mm. And so... From like knowing that, and you know, representing um, First Nations people, you know, I and and to be a part of the Indigenous peoples there was really incredible. What really actually, you know, really actually clarified how important it is to have people in that space because, um, you know, some of you know. As mentioned before, like, you know, it was really overwhelming, um, you know, going past our pavilion and not being able to feel proud about what we were doing to make sure that we safeguard, you know, like Indigenous people, not only here, but, you know, our Pacific brothers and sisters, because our emissions here contribute to those climate impacts in the Pacific Islands. And so for me, you know, it was something like, okay, I really like learned that it's you know solidarity between us and between all indigenous people is so important and interconnected because we're actually fighting for the same thing all mm. across the globe we came together and had important conversations and we are all fighting to protect our country and our culture from climate and fossil fuel expansion and so you know what this has sort of done is like hoping that, you know, seeing what has come out of the Glasgow impact, you know, it's 
shifted, um, but, you know, giving me hope and uh, motivation to sort of see, may, see now how seed um, piles the pressure on not only um, on co- corporations like Origin Energy that are fracking the um, Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory, but, you know, our governments, you know, our political leaders um, and leaders in a quotation marks. Right now, I feel that they miss opportunities, and so, you know, um, at Glasgow, and so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, from here, um, you know, what goes on in the next couple of months. And super excited that, you know, I get to be able to work together closely here with my ecstasy, Jay, um, you know, building our deadly young people up for, for, for the fight. Thank you, Tish. Yeah, Jay, I might just go to you now. Um, you weren't at this COP uh, summit, but uh, there were representatives from Pacific Climate Warriors at COP26, and there was um, we spoke uh, a few weeks ago about the Youth for Pacific Declaration on Climate that was going to be presented at that gathering to Pacific and other global leaders. So could you talk to us about um, how the declaration was received um, at COP26 and the outcome, how you kind of perceive the outcome of that conference as well? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, the Youth for Pacific Declaration, uh, so it was delivered on the 4th of November, uh, I think it was in the first week, um, to the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, so Henry Puna and the Prime Minister of Fiji, which is um, Frank Bynum. Um, during the high-level uh, Pacific Island Forum's Oceans event at Glasgow, um, the symbol of our declaration is our say, and say is um, a specific word, Polynesian word, more specifically it's a Samoan word for um, flower or the flower that's worn behind your ear, uh, which was also presented to our leaders. So we gave them our declaration um, and a say, which they wore throughout the um, their negotiations at COP, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, it was just a way to like pay homage to... Um, like our leaders who have been in the front lines of this like climate action way before us. Um, so like, yes, we were handing over a declaration which held seven demands that like the youth of our Pacific region were like hoping to like influence policies and discussions in their negotiations. But the act of um, delivering it was also like a symbol of um, honoring the work of those who have been doing this work before us. Um, like us acknowledging that way we stand on the shoulders of like giants who have been doing this work for so long. Um, in terms of outcomes, we believe we contributed. I mean, along with everyone else in the climate movement, it was like the language in, that was used in these spaces. Um, we really highlighted the importance of youth in these spaces. Um, these actions have provided um, so many opportunities to allow our work to continue to infiltrate that work. Uh, because, yes, it was weak, the language was weak, um, but, uh, you know, honour the work of those who have been doing this for so long, that, like, that's... Yeah, I don't know how to explain it, but, it's like, acknowledging, yes, it was weak, but we got this far because of the work that had been done before us. And so, in a way, I guess we were already... Um, expecting an unsuccessful COP, but we know this is like just a moment in our movement, and we like we'll always be given the opportunity to continue continue this work for next year. Um, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, yeah I think you say, you know you say like yeah, it's hard to explain, but I think you're doing a beautiful job <laughs> of explaining that, and also the way that yeah, these these summits are big deals, but they're all also just um, a moment in a continuous kind of fight. Exactly. Um, I did want to ask just specifically, we talked a little bit in the last interview with Falole about that declaration and I wanted to ask us specifically about the last demand, which was um, a focus on transformation of global financial systems away from extraction and towards regenerative, regenerative economies. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that demand because it seems so important, that idea of moving away from extractive economies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it is very similar to the, the demand in there about like the the Santiago network. Um, but yeah, so we're demanding a global financial system that supports a just recovery or a just transition away from fossil fuel extraction. Basically, like it's the whole point of what the COVID Commission <laughs> meant to do that came out late last year or early this year in Australia, um, you know, making big bad corporations realize that investing in fossil fuels is a risky investment and this is how we destabilize the fossil fuel industry. Um, this ties also into like climate finance work, you know, redirecting all that money that is going into these bad investments who actually need it um, to the communities who have been and are still impacted by, um, you know, both COVID and the climate crisis. Um, so like the global financial system is also reiterating like it's time to build this system that invests in justice-based solutions. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, we were speaking in the news headlines about, uh, you know, access to vaccines and um, it's kind of all of these things are so interconnected, as you say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't need to say this to either of you, but like, you know, I really do recognise that the importance of First Nations and Pacific leadership in the climate justice space really can't be be overstated, um, and the de your declaration, Jay, speaks about climate change as a live reality for many Pacific people, and this is also true for people living on this continent, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Tish, I might throw to you, I was wondering if you could speak about, you know, the effects of climate change, um, as well as the knowledges of those communities and how we can learn about them and uh, learn from them and, and how they lead us um, in, in the fight. Yeah, um, I feel, you know, it's actually something that makes me feel super proud to be a part of SEED um, with the fight for climate culture and country is that, you know, with this is that, you know, we, there's, there has been change across, um, across our country and islands for, for decades where we were already seeing sea levels rising um, in 1940s um, in the Torres Straits and communities had to relocate and ask for permission to live on mainland Australia. We've, you know, we've seen the impacts of fires, flooding um, and coral bleaching. And, you know, what we haven't though seen is that, you know, the way that how, like how, much stronger and fierce they're becoming. And we've really seen that in the last decade where, you know, flooding now is happening more rapidly and at different times where it's, you know, flash floods. Uh, you know, our fires are burning for longer and more extreme. And, you know, our, our islands, are, our oceans are rising 
um, that we've seen in the Pacific for so many years, and two is like that in the Torres Strait Islands. And, you know, it's about, like, you know, shifting to those sort of nature-based solutions. Like, uh, Sissy J just didn't mention about, like, the Santiago Network, which is about loss and damages. And it's something that I, you know, felt really proud to be a part of and, you know, stood together um, with Pacific uh, people to talk about um, about loss and damages and those, you know, um, you know, who is accountable for when we see the damages to our country and to our islands. And so, you know, we, you know, First Nations people, not only here in Australia, but across the globe have been, you know, looking after their lands for time immemorial and have been using their traditional practices to look after land. And, you know, after our recent bushfires, we saw how important it was to really implement, you know, traditional knowledge because we know the nature, those nature-based solutions that will look after this land, that can be robust in this land. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, believing that First Nations leadership and self-determination is really critical in addressing the climate crisis. Um, and going back to that, you know, there's no climate justice without First Nations justice. And, you know, to really avoid the, you know, the catastrophic impacts that, you know, we know that are still, you know, can still see in our lifetime is, you know, building the resilience of communities into the future. And, you know, yes, we need to leave new fossil fuels in the ground and give back power and leadership to those First Nations people to care for country sustainably, as we have done for many, for hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah, I think that time... um that time frame that you're speaking about, time immemorial and hundreds of thousands of years, and that this is really the product of a few hundred years of um, industrialization. So it's really important to think about that like vast, vast knowledge that you're kind of drawing from and speaking to there. Jay, I did want to ask about the um, Santiago Network on Loss and Damage, which Tish just mentioned. Could you just talk about, that was one of the demands um, in your uh, declaration, and could you talk about what that network is and why it's important for a just transition? Yeah, sure. Um, the Santiago Network is um, uh, yeah, it's basically like a network that to help vulnerable communities of climate disaster. And so it acts or it facilitates by linking those who can provide finance or, or expertise like governments and charities and companies with those in need of help. And this is so important for a just transition because, uh, you know, it will help disseminate a lot of research. Um, this is specific to loss and damage. And, you know, as we know, history tells us that loss and damage into a policy has been super difficult. Um, vulnerable countries want to see big budget while rich countries you know, are just trying to, like, keep that budget small. And there's also been real awkward conversations where, you know, they're negotiating whether developed countries should even provide finance for loss and damage. So, like, this network is seen as, like, a great initiative um, to, like, influence a lot of the work that people are trying to push for loss and damage, but it's just not happening. And so this has kind of been this thing that's happening on the side um, to help bring... Um, loss and damage to um, agenda and frontline communities and countries are demanding a funding plan that does more than just pay for access um, sorry, that does more than just pay for assessing damages 
but also rebuilding infrastructure aid for impacted communities. It's basically justice for those who are suffering from something that somebody else caused. So I think it speaks to that um, notion of, you know, leaving no one behind. Um, and this includes process-wise and discussions and conversations. And, it's, and in that process, it's steering away from, like, the world of fossil fuels. Hopefully I explained that well. Yeah, no, that was really great. I think that um, it's really important to think about that, uh, or not just think about it, to actually, that, that loss and damages are um, paid for by, by the countries that actually cause that damage um, to communities who are feeling the effects of, of climate change right now. Yeah. Um, Tish, you've also worked on the Our Island, Our Home campaign. And I was wondering, you know, this kind of um, connects to what, uh, Jay was just talking about. Could you tell listeners about that campaign and also give us an update on where that U- UN human rights complaint process is up to? Yeah, absolutely. And I just love hearing Sissy Jay speak. Um, <laughs> always constantly learning and I was like, oh, such a great explanation about loss and damages. Thanks, sis. Um, but <clears throat> folks out there um, and deadly TPR community, like for those who haven't heard about Our Islands Our Home, it's an incredible collaborative campaign uh, that is with 350 Australia, um, the client Earth, who are the environmental lawyers, human rights lawyers based in the United Kingdom, GBK, which are the native title body um, space and land and sea management of the Torres Strait Islands, um, and with Seedmob. And so Seedmob have only come in um, in the last year of this incredible campaign, but it, um, Our Islands Are Home is building a movement to ensure that Torres Strait Islanders um, and voices are heard um, and that the Australian government is um, actually held accountable for their climate policies. And this campaign is led by eight Torres Strait Islanders who are fighting to protect their island homes. And this is, um, they're known as the Torres Strait Eight, and they've been spearheading this and have brought a human rights complaint against the Australian federal government to the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations, yeah, over the government's lack of inaction to climate change. And so, you know, one of, um, you know, upon reflecting on COP and, you know, these important conversations, one of the advances that came out of the Glasgow Pact, um, you know, was the affirmation that greenhouse gas emissions must be significantly reduced to levels that will limit the global temperature increase to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade over the pre-industrial levels. And so, you know, where we are at with this case is that, you know, we've been going back and forth um, with the Australian government who actually have just <clears throat> uh, have rejected the claim. And so it's now sitting with uh, the United Nations Human Rights Committee and, you know, looking at, you know, how while there were advances to the Glasgow Pact, um, there's been a lot of things that have been watered down and we just, you know, I I believe that, you know, a, a, the, our political leaders missed an opportunity to be more ambitious and I'm hoping that, you know, their inactions here will help um, you know, the eight incredible claimants that are spearheading this campaign. Um, and so stay tuned 
folks because as we sort of shift over to like, um, you know, there's, you know, talk of federal elections and local and state elections, um, I'm sure it'll be part of our campaign strategy. Totally. Um, Tish, I wanted to ask you, I've got so many questions, but I just want to ask you one more about, um, uh, so, you know, there was the destruction of the caves at Jukun Gorge in 2020. We've seen so many sacred sites be damaged or destroyed, both by mining and climate change, and we know how linked those two things are. Um, the WA government is proposing some new legislation around Aboriginal heritage protection, but it's being criticised for not giving traditional owners veto power. I was just wanting to ask you about um, the continued desecration of country and how it's, is it, well, is it indicative of the government and the colony's approach to First Nations sovereignty and how is the issue of sovereignty and climate justice tied together? I mean, that's an incredible question. And, I mean, there's a lot in there to definitely deconstruct. Um, but I think, you know, simply that if, if First Nations people had the veto to, you know, say what happens to country, I definitely think it is an incredible step to sovereignty, um, you know, and how issues, you know, and how it is tied to climate change. Because, you know, after here, you know, our conversation reflecting about, you know, you know, Indigenous peoples and, you know, how they've been caring for country for, you know, for thousands of years, you know, it's, I think it just goes back to reiterate that, we know what's good for our country and know those nature-based solutions, those traditional, um, you know, practices that are so deeply tied to culture and our connection to country. And it's really imperative to understand that we, you know, we are all deeply connected um, to our lands, our oceans, our rivers. We are so intrinsically connected that when we, you know, when country is hurting, we are hurting. And it does go back to that, you know, we, First Nations people have, you know, should have land back and should have a right of, you know, and say what happens on it. Um, but I will leave it there because I'm sure it, I could go on about this. I mean, it's a really <laughs> big question. I'm sorry to leave you with that no, at the end. Fine. Um, my final question is to both of you. So I might start with you, Jay. I just wanted to end, um, by asking you about the importance of solidarity between First Nations people here and Pacific communities in the fight for climate, for just climate policy and a transition and a transition to renewables and how also listeners can support each of your organizations in fighting for climate justice. Um, sure. Um, yeah, it's, Definitely very important. It can't happen without it. Um, and I think if people don't know how to do it, then they go on the journey to unpack and learn what that is. And that includes a lot of like self work, like I'm realizing your privilege in, in the space, in this world. Um, that's all a part of like building that solidarity with First Nations people. Um, I think Pacific communities, there's like two contexts, I guess, like, um, I am a Pacific Islander, but I also recognize I am a settler in this country. And so um, I got to, like, do the work to, like, recognize what my what my role is in the certain spaces that I step in. Um, Tish is from Seed, and, like, the journey, the activism journey of Seed um, has always been, um, like, a, a guidance for the Pacific Climate Warriors when the work moved to Australia. 
Um, I think, um, you know, we didn't know how to move in. Activism in Australia is just different compared to activism in the Pacific. Um, and so looking to see has always been, um, yeah, a resource of guidance for us. And, like, I know Kish and I know each other very well, but I think that also speaks to how close our um, understanding of, like, the importance of climate justice is in this work. And, um, you know, I, I describe climate justice as, like, the thing that we're all trying to get to. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what, what it feels, but we'll know when we get it. And um, it's like um, uh, like we've just been spending uh, way too long on trying to draw a map of how to get there. Oh, actually, I think it's more we're spending too much time on who gets to draw the map because First Nations and Indigenous folks around the world already know how to get there, um, but nobody's listening. And so we're just, like, going around in circles trying to, like, figure out what paper, what pen to use, who wants to have the rights to own this map. Um, and I think once we realise that this is something we're all trying to do for each other, we'll say we get there a lot sooner. Um, yes, I'll leave it there. Thank you, Jay. And Tish, I'm just going to um, go to you to ask, answer the same question, I guess, about solidarity. <laughs> and, yeah, if you want to also share where listeners can find out more about SeedMob. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just like, you know, small crying here listening to Sissy J. Um, I just want to reiterate, yeah, um, and likewise, like Seed Mob has been, you know, with the many, many leaders before, um, before myself and at um, Pacific Climate Warriors really um, built the foundations of what, you know, solidarity looks like and what together we can achieve by standing shoulder to shoulder. And you know what? I proudly say that, and I actually want to acknowledge that um, I couldn't have gotten and um, you know to, uh, the support from COP without actually the 350 Pacific um, p- people. And so you know the solidarity work together. You know, I played a um, you know a, a role in supporting them. Um, you know, all deliver their Youth for Pacific. And, you know, that solidarity, like, over there, and it just comes to us naturally. And so, you know, I think it goes um, back to what, you know, what Sissy J was saying about, you know, this map um, of trying to draw it, and and I absolutely agree. Um, You know, we don't know what it looks like, but we all are fighting to get there, and we do actually need everyone. It does require everyone. We need to stand together shoulder to shoulder in unity because, um, you know, this impacts all of us and we need to put pressure on our leaders at, you know, all levels, um, local, state and federal, to make sure that, you know, we can, um, there is significant change. But, you know, we've seen the power of people coming together and I know it, we can we can do that here. And so, you know, as there um, is going to be a, a lot of campaigning over the next six months, um, definitely head to Seed Mob on our socials, um, our island's our home. Um, and, yeah, we'll have links to lots of things coming up with webinars and updates. And um, I'm sure, likewise, to the Pacific Climate Warriors. Absolutely. Thank you both really so much for joining us this morning and um, yeah, sharing all of these thoughts, knowledge and just your experience of, of COP26 as well, Tish. We really, really appreciate it at 3CR. Thank you. Thank you. No worries. Thank you for having us.
That was Tish King, a proud Torres Strait Islander with strong connections to Masakambaru Islands and the campaign director of SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network, and Jay Fa'amau, a member of Pacific Climate Warriors and a regional Pacific campaign specialist at 350, joining us on Thursday breakfast to speak about COP26, First Nations and Pacific leadership and solidarity in the fight for climate justice. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2021. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we are heading up to time on today's show. And what an excellent interview that just was, Rosie. Um, just, it was so lovely to just hear the relationship as well between Tish and Jay and how they're supporting each other. And it, you know, it, it's a very warm feeling between them both, which really speaks to the solidarity um, that you asked them to discuss in your final questions. Um, so, Let's uh, cover what we spoke about today. It was um, a big show, always a big show. And we started off hearing from Mick Power, who's the logistics coordinator at United Workers Union, who spoke with Rosie earlier this week about country road workers strike action and win at the Truganina Warehouse, where workers were fighting for union rights, fair pay and better working conditions. We then heard from Julia Cochran who is the State Director of Coalition for the Protection of Greyhounds Victoria, and they joined us to speak about concerns with the Melbourne Cup Greyhound racing season, which is currently underway. Julia is also lead volunteer for rescue group Gumtree Greys. And then finally, we spoke with Tishiko King, a proud Torres Strait Islander with strong connections to Masakambadu Islands and the campaign director at Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, and Jay Fa'amau, a member of the Pacific Climate Warriors and a regional Pacific campaign specialist at 350, and they were both joining Thursday breakfast this morning to speak about COP26, First Nations and Pacific leadership and solidarity in the fight for climate justice. Yeah, and you can find out more about the amazing work that Seed Mob and Pacific Climate Warriors are doing um, across their social media. I know at least for Seed Mob, they've got the uh, handle on Instagram and Twitter at Seed Mob. And for Pacific Climate Warriors, that's at 350 Pacific on Twitter and at Pacific Climate Warriors on Instagram. And um, yeah, I think we're just coming up to time on Thursday breakfast, but um, really important to keep these conversations going, even though COP26 is over. Obviously, climate justice is ongoing. We mentioned at the start of the show, La Nina is happening. So we'll catch you next week with more important conversations. And until then, stay safe. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.